Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? Today, Russell, mm. I am feeling deeply inquisitive. And Ooh. as often does actually happen in my life, there's often a lot of kind of synchronicity and coincidences that to me feel like they have a lot of meaning. Mm. But in the past two weeks, I have been kind of presented in popular culture with a number of different themes. Now, one of these came from the singer-songwriter FKA Twigs, because I got really into her record Mary Magdalene, and I was reading some of her interviews and looking into kind of like the motivations behind behind that album, and in particular that, that, that one song. Mm-hmm. And she was talking a lot about this idea that when she was growing up in England, I think she grew up like near Sirencester, she was talking about how Mary Magdalene was always seen as this kind of prostitute and how we were all told, you know, that was kind of her main role in a way. Um, And instead, the more research she did, she discovered that, you know, Mary Magdalene was not only Jesus's best friend, but also his kind of confidant and someone that was like incredibly loyal and loving. And she was also a herbalist and a healer. And there was this whole kind of very complex, wonderful, generous story about her life that was kind of missing from the narratives that we were told. And then this past weekend, I started to watch the movies of Robert Eggers, who has made things like The Witch and The Lighthouse. And both of those films completely had me like spun out. Um, A friend of mine recommended them to me. And after The Witch, I felt like I was flying. And I just had this kind of out of body experience. And it's deeply about psychology. And yeah. then I went straight on to the lighthouse, which is literally like having your brain opened and suddenly you're going to find out all your darkest fears and, you know, all of your psychology. It's just the most terrifying film in a way. It's kind of brutal and tender. And then at the same time, a book arrived from the gallery Gagosian um, of the guest who we're meeting today, who I have mm. been following for a number of years, but I didn't know the kind of devil that is in the details, like the kind of fine details, the kind of rich landscape that is A, her mind, but B, the the work over the past uh, three decades, almost 30 years of work. Like I kind of knew, you know, points of it, you know, maybe like four exhibitions in total, say. Mm. And it is the most extraordinary body of work. And it links very much to both of those other artists I mentioned, because 
it's this whole idea of like narratives and how you grow up as a child believing that you want to fall in love with a princess when in fact maybe the princess is you like in my case <laughs> i should have just looked after and been tender or to you're, myself or you're, you're basically the witch though aren't you more than i the am princess. the witch as well but i should have really been looking for a prince but i was never told that but um anyway i i just i just think her work is extraordinary and also the dualities within the work the kind of the yeah. complex psychology of it and also the use of materials and there is so much to discuss us. So I am over the moon that we have been connected to New York right now. We would like to welcome to Talk Art, Rachel, Rachel Feinstein. Hi, thank you so Hi, much. Rachel. Your introduction was absolutely spot on, especially now that you're looking at the religious imagery behind my head. I wish you guys could project and see everything <laughs> that, that you're able to see as well. But I totally. I totally um, thank you thank you for that introduction and and it, and it was in, it was in part because I think your work encompasses so much more than just fine art so you are a fine artist you you yeah. make sculptures and installations yeah. and paintings and all kinds of things performances even yeah. but um, I think what's so fascinating about you is the way that you you incorporate so much of culture yeah. all different kinds of culture into what you do yeah I think mm -hmm. it's also because I was raised in a way that. Um, I came from Miami, which is also who is actually from Miami. <laughs> like people move there, you know, <laughs> later on in life or they move there, you know, to like get some sun every once in a while. But I was raised right. there. I My parents moved there when I was one year old. Um, I was born on the Navajo Reservation, which is even another weird story in itself. But my dad uh -huh. did a residency in um, skin cancer at the University of Miami in 1972, and they never thought they were gonna stay there. They thought they were just gonna go there, he was gonna do his residency, and then they were gonna move back to the New York area, which was, my dad's from Brooklyn, and my mom was from, originally from upstate New York. So I, I had this upbringing that was completely bizarre. There was, no, um, there was no foundation in what I think a lot of traditional um, people get in, in terms of like, there's no history, first of all, in Miami. It's it's like a blank slate. There's there the oldest building was from like 1920, um, in term, and that's like considered like ancient. There, they can't even believe that it still exists. That didn't get everything gets torn down. Everything is a new McMansion, and um, but then at the same time, nature itself is so violent and powerful with the hurricanes and the there was like a pack of wild dogs that would come and terrorize my family every night in like the 70s and in attacks and ate my cat and just really crazy really unbelievable stories like alligators going into people's swimming pools and one time we would swim in this big um man-made pond behind a friend's home and and it turns out there was an alligator in there and we didn't know it and a guy came and caught it right in front of us when we were kids you know like, like it was just like it was unreal and so my my story of my childhood was like a, a Grimm's fairy tale or even as I like to say yeah. before Grimm's the original fairy tales before Brothers Grimm's were much more violent and much more crazy and so when you talk about Mary Magdalene I was a religion major at Columbia University and my parents coming from my father being a first generation American, there was no, um, no understanding of what being a contemporary artist would be and, and, and belief that that could be an actual career. So I never thought of it as a career for myself either. I thought that I was always 
someone who was very creative and I needed to express myself through my hands. And there's images of like my dad buying the first family, um, you know, giant VHS, you know, camera for Christmas in the early eighties. And, and he, and he takes it out. And, and the first image of me is like seven years old wearing like a little, like, um, like funny little jumpsuit with big, big pigtails. And I'm just constructing boxes and I've got a hot glue gun. I'm building some kind of crazy looking sculpture out of boxes. And, and that is who I am. And that is my reality. But I didn't understand what that meant until really now. And I'm 49 years old, turning 50 this year. I mean, I really, I'm having this big retrospective this year and all this stuff has finally putting all those sculptures in one room. I'm like, I'm an artist. I'm actually an artist. And how, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a miracle because I didn't know that that was a possibility. And so I think that in that, you know, like everything, there's a, it's a duality is a good side of having that freedom. And there's a bad side of it as well. You know, where I, I came from no cultural background. So it was, it was so unconscious. It was so much of like whatever was deep inside of me and it was not learned from anything else. And then I came to Columbia University to do religion, which actually was on the road of having tried to do pre-med to satisfy my parents, which was a disaster. But I, um, I realized that I love stories and I love, um, I love knowing about that violence of, of, of the story of the girl and, and that she has to like fend off wolves. And then she, but you know, it, and the funny thing about fairy tales and it's, I think a lot to do with even me personally and, and how I am and how, I look and how I present myself to the world is I think there's so much more than what meets the eye. And I think that fairy tales and Rococo and all these kind of things that I've kind of associated myself with, it's because people on the surface just brush it off as being something like, Oh, a fairy tale. Of course. It's like, it's like a little story for a girl to think of that. She's going to marry her prince. And that's the end of the story. The real ones if you read the original Sleeping Beauty story, it's nothing like the one that we know today. You know, it's it's incredibly mm-hmm. violent. Um, it was it's the first one is actually even earlier than the sixteenth or fifteenth century. I wrote a paper about it when I was in college. It says she basically is put into this kind of coma state by her own father, really, because he didn't want her to become a sexual adult human being like a woman he wanted to keep her in this perfect girl um like i can control you state which also i find really fascinating now that i have three children it puts you in a different spin of looking at that moment when a child is just on that cusp of becoming a person like an adult and it's just it's really an incredible magical kind of scary experience as as the parents and i get why he did that now instead of it being yeah. horrible and i actually understand <laughs> it you know and so it's the archetype like stereotype of a father not wanting the daughter to go out and, and yes date, isn't exactly it? and also just so i've got yeah, yeah sorry i'm like talking like i've got i've got i've got a few i've got a few questions <laughs> yeah. for you then because it feels like your childhood was kind of like the the gashly crumb tiny yes like it would go absolutely how did you absolutely how did you get rid of the wild dogs? I mean, so my, so my there? mom, the story was, is that there is this like, this, 
so we lived on the edge of the mangroves, which was like, you know, what the Everglades is, but it, the truth is they've taken all that away for a long time, but there's little pockets of it left in certain areas. And my family still has this little mangrove area. And I guess these wild dogs lived in there and they would come out at night. So we, my mom and dad were sleeping and we were all sleeping. It was the middle of the night. And my mom, I, I hear this like, blood curdling scream. My mom is downstairs outside completely naked. My mom would sleep naked and didn't put on a robe or anything and is out there like battling them. And they've got my cat like, and they're tearing my cat oh. apart. And my mom is being bitten. And my sister ended up becoming a veterinarian, um, I think because of all this crazy stuff. And she actually save the cat. I mean, the cat was, had, was in pieces and, and my sister and her, and my, like ran to some type of emergency veterinary clinic in the middle of the night. And, and I mean, another story was there's wild iguanas that now have actually overtaken Miami in the sense that they've, they've made um, it legal for people to shoot and kill iguanas in their backyard. <laughs> and, and so when I was growing up, there was this huge iguana. I mean, I'm talking like two feet long from head to tail that would sleep outside on our, like, you know, on our dock. And one day it wasn't there anymore. And we're like, wow, I wonder where the iguana went. And this, this cat in question, his name was Cookie. He was really tough. He, uh, he, he just threw up the head of the iguana and he had eaten, he had eaten a 48 inch long, like animal and was like vomiting the whole thing up while we were eating dinner. (laughs) Wow. Well, they, they, these, so these stories feel like they really play into your formative years and the formation of how you've gone into making Absolutely. art because it's all about you really celebrate the the circle of life but the yeah. decay oh, of humanity and and your so your you talked about your dad earlier on yeah. treating skin cancer yeah. but he was a dermatologist yes. and you yes. you had lying around the house skin yeah. magazines yeah. that would show syphilitic. Yes. It, like yes. imperfections in skin and stuff. So, yeah. But as a kid, you, you'd look at these, pour over these and take this information oh, in. Oh, to the point where it's a kind of an inappropriate story, but I didn't have any clue of what a penis looked like except for these images in these magazines, which were so horrible. And so, oh so the, first time, the first time I saw a penis, um, I was in high school and I'm making out with my boyfriend and I see it and I say, it's like a newborn mouse. I didn't know the skin was so light and so skinny and so pink. And he just got so upset with me. And so you're expecting <laughs> something like the plague. Oh, you're expected to pull out yes, the bubonic plague. I thought and it be- would have sores all over it. I mean, it's so crazy. Oh my God. So it was very extreme. I did not have a middle of the road experience. Everything was one extreme versus the other, which makes me, I think, why I love duality. Because duality is this struggle that one side can't live without the other. You know, you can't live without good, without evil. You can't live without, Mm. you know, light without dark. You can't have old without young, that kind of stuff. You know, man versus woman. It's the... yeah, so it's the forensic side of life that you and, and I know your one of your favorite shows was the Forensic Files oh, yes, when that was on yes, TV. Yes. But it feels like you yes. like. Have you seen that Body World yeah, show? Yes. I feel like that sort of thing is yes. like something you would adore. Totally, totally. But, I love that stuff. But, but that, it also freaks. It also 
having tried to do the whole medical thing because of my family, I mean, I was a, you know, candy striper. I worked in the emergency room when I was 15 years old, admitting people at the front desk at night. My parents got me the nighttime shift job as a 15 year old admitting people in an emergency room. And I saw a man die um, on the desk the first night I was there. I mean, how crazy oh is that? And so it was like, there was no, there's no calmness in my life. And for that reason, though, I also realize I'm terrified um, by the flesh and the blood and the, the visceral, rea- the realness. Like, I couldn't do it as a, as a doctor. There is no way. I, and um, so I appreciate people who can do that because it definitely yeah. takes – I can create it as, as this fantasy world. And then, but I can't actually, you know, there's another amazing thing that someone, my friend Amy Mullins um, gave me this book called The Nutshell Diaries, which is an incredible book. It's about this um, woman who is like a matriarch, wealthy woman in, I think, Philadelphia in the 1930s or 40s who had had all these kids. They all left town. And for whatever reason, she decided to start taking care of, um, helping the local police and she started creating these dollhouse scenes of murders to explain violent crimes and how the how it happened but she did it through dolls and it's Mm. a really incredible fascinating book that um that it's it's bizarre that this woman came to find this art form and they still study these dollhouse scenes. They're like recreations of real life murders, but with dolls. And um, and she's basically was the beginning of forensic science, according to this book in in America. It's incredible. Yeah. And, well, I think also I think women somehow are able to deal with that in a weird way. I don't understand why, but there's this there's this whole thing about. The, the going back to religion, the body and how the body of a woman is is not in control. Like that's the whole history of religion and why I think they got rid of Mary Magdalene and then supposedly the original Eve, who was Lilith. You know, there's the whole story of Lilith, mm-hmm. and I've been very so. So according to Judaism, um, there was there was somebody called Lilith who was Adam's equal and Lilith was created from God not from man's rib as Eve was created and that she was a loud mouth and was kind of a problem and that basically um, she was changed over and moved um, to be um, outsourced with Eve and and um, and there's a whole um, world of scholars that believe that she was written out of the story by like basically the early Christians who changed They basically, there's a different voice that started to write after Eve shows up on the scene. Um, and it's this idea of writing out people that you don't want to have such a strong voice. Um, and, mm. and um, the interest in, for me in terms of being a woman is, is this idea of the creation of life and how, you know, if you look at farms and people have known this for a really long time, you only need one man and a whole, you know, male cow to a bull for a huge giant farm of females. And 
for that reason alone, possibly that power and that knowledge from early cultures terrified the early Christians. They just decided to kind of say, well, Eve, because she did this, is now going to be subjected by man, that he's going to be in charge. He's going to tell her what to do. She's going to have pain from childbirth. All that shows up out of the blue, you know, in that story. And it was never there before that. That's, that's the, that's the theory, you know? And, um, so, you know, all of our life in, in terms of what's happening with COVID and, um, and, you know, and, and, um, different voices that are coming out. It's like, there's this kind of Phoenix happening that, possibly people who weren't able to speak are now speaking and you just, you know, and, and whether, you know, that's all changing is, is going to be interesting to watch and see. Yeah. Mm-mm. One of the things I find so fascinating about your work actually is that idea of um, a whole lifetime and, and, and in particular an experience I don't have being male, but like a, a lifetime of a woman yeah. and this kind of evolution of a woman and how complex women yeah. are and the strength that women have. And, and also as you get older, this kind of, I love the way you speak about like kind of postmenopause, yeah. <laughs> kind of clarity of vision yeah, or something yeah. like this laser kind of vision you it describe, but, but, the, but, 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 but the kind of whole experience and not the experience, what you were talking about with the sleeping beauty yeah. of what society tries to yeah. do and has done successfully where people like Marilyn Monroe die yeah. young so, yeah. and then they forever become you know in amber this kind of like youthful woman yeah. and then that becomes the archetype yeah. that everyone wants to hold on to but I've always found women inspiring who are much older like I mm. some of my really inspiring friends are like 60 70 you know mm. artists that mm. I love I fell in love with when they were making work at 70 totally. do you yes. know what I mean like yes. like can you speak a bit about that yeah. that, that kind of th- theme yes in so I mean for me um Another big realization is also this idea of who is an artist and who gets, it's such an incredible gift to be able to have time to just think, to think about what you want to do and what you want to see and who you are. You know, most people are struggling just to kind of figure out what is going to be on the table for the you know dinner tonight. They're just so, there's mm. like, and you think about the history of the world, like you would have to go out there and find food and actually like kill something, you know? And so I think that um, there's a reason why women um, artists haven't been really prevalent in the world. And also because the ones that are had um, basically no children or they came from very wealthy families is because everything was actually taken care of for them. I think that if you're a woman who's t- you know toiling in the fields, carrying three kids, there's no way you're going to be an artist. There's no way you have the time to think about, oh, I you know I really feel like I like the color yellow today. <laughs> you know, yellow is going to be like what I'm going to think about. So it's a very important realization that it is, um, it's a, it's an incredible gift. And I think that. Um, survival is very strong for most women and they think about women for better for worse think about other people all the time you know and they think about not just their own children but their their parents and their grandparents and their friends and and it becomes this kind of constant struggle in my mind as an artist like artists are absolutely supposed to be the most selfish, awful people in the world. And you look at the ones that have been the most successful and the best. I mean, Picasso is still, I mean, the guy that I want to beat and everyone wants to beat, but he was the most horrible person from what I can tell, you know, and in terms of just 
a very selfish, very egotistical, you know, if you read My Life with Picasso by Francois Gillot and, and all those kind mm. of stories. And I, it's, it's um, the world wants to actually send love to someone that selfish who is an artist. They don't like an artist who actually worries and cares about other people. It's, it's kind of a horrible thing. And so, you know, but then there's the problem if you're a woman, you can't be selfish and horrible either. So you're stuck in this kind of um, holding pattern, which is a little bit like you can't win. So there's Alice Neal, who I think is an incredible, who was an incredible painter. And, you yes. know, there's a documentary about how she was, you know, not a great mom, you know, and, and meanwhile, what documentary is there about Picasso being a great, you know, I mean, not a great dad, a you know, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So you can't, you can't win and you might as well just kind of, that's the interesting thing where I am in my point right now in life is that um, once you just start accepting things it, it, and settling in, like, you know, I think, I think things kind of get better. Um you know, there's a scene in that movie Contact. I don't know if you ever saw that movie Contact. Does the Matthew yes, McConaughey? I love that film. I, my husband always gets annoyed with me because I, I use this scene. And it's kind of a stupid movie. But for whatever reason, I have this metaphor of this scene that I think of where she's designed this, you know, this giant spaceship based on these incredible, you know, ancient mathematics or something. And the American government says, you can't... Um, we're not going to let you go unless we bolt this chair down. And she says, but it's not in the plans. We're not supposed to bolt the chair down. And he said, we're not going to let you go up there in a chair that floats around in this high impact, uh, you know. So she said, okay. So she's bolted in and the, the thing's taking off and it's rattling around until her cheeks are like exploding. And then the bolts explode off and then the seat just floats perfectly. And so I always have that experience of like, we are always putting the bolts into the, this floor um, ourselves. We think that we're protecting ourselves and we're being careful, but we're actually making it a lot worse for ourselves. I think that if you just literally like relax and, and just mm. stop like putting up all the obstacles that constantly we keep doing all the time, it will float and you'll figure out what you need to do. And Isn't that trust in your own instincts, though? Yeah. She is, she was told to yes. do that, and she's like, I don't think we should be doing that, and then it worked well, out. See, that's, that she didn't trust her instincts. Exactly. Yeah. So and I think, well, that's the problem with, um, you know, I'm I'm doing um, Jungian psychoanalysis right now. I got really into Carl oh, yeah. Jung a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, and because of COVID, I finally just said, I'm going to do this. I have the time to do this, and I've been doing it on Zoom with this amazing woman. Um, and a lot of Jungian stuff is about, just absolutely listening to your your unconscious because our conscious so a duality of conscious and unconscious is is this kind of incredible thing that Jung believes in and that right now being awake and alive and speaking to you guys I'm in this state that is um kind of premeditated that I am this woman I am you know an artist I live in New York City I'm from Miami I'm all these things I'm telling you about but my unconscious is another thing and it's actually free it doesn't have any dictations of of our society putting them on me so the reason why you can fly in your dream is because there's not there's no gravity because that happens as something that's controlling you in in conscious life so your mm -hmm. unconscious is trying to tell you things very very clearly in your dreams 
that you need to listen to. And it's just, it's so, it's so this is this whole new thing I'm working. So what's, what's happening in your dreams now? What's your subconscious is telling you right now? Okay. Let me think of a really good one that I had recently. Oh, this is a really, really crazy dream. So I had a dream that I went to, I growing up in Miami, I went to Disney world in Orlando, like hundreds of times. And I made John go, my husband, John Kerr, and I made him go with, um, our two kids before we had our third one and he just thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to him. All the pictures of him are like the sad face, like in every picture that we have with the family, he looks like he's been, he's been sent to like Auschwitz or something. I mean, it's like crazy. He looks like he's on like a sad tour of a death camp or something, but he's at Disney world and he's so upset. Anyway, so I have a dream that we're in Disney world and the whole thing's shut down and it's after hours and we're walking through the gift shops, um, the dark gift shops. And there's other people there that are tourists with their family as well. And we go to a, um, a ride that, for whatever reason, the end of the ride is a slide into a water that's made out up of chicken wings, fried chicken wings, like the kind that you would eat at like a sports bar. Like, and, and John has eaten the entire slide the bottom of the slide and everybody's really upset that he's ruined their experience because there's no slide anymore. So I was like, what in the world does that dream mean? I mean, that's so crazy. And, and so it has a lot to do with, um, you know, with, with our, our relationship with being artists and not feeling like we can have fun with our children that somehow other people, have this relationship with their children where it's like off hours, it's fun. And then like, you know, cause they work at like a normal job, they go and they're like a doctor, or they're a lawyer, which is how I was raised. And, you know, and then you go, but we, there's a kind of, there's this weird, no line between either of those worlds. So it's like this fuzzy line. And so she has the whole thing about eating the chicken wings and the word chicken, and the connotation of being afraid that we're afraid of, of, of having fun with our kids. It's just this really crazy, it breaks down symbolisms. It breaks down. Mm. Um, so there's this whole idea of archetypes that we all historically, not just us now, but if you go back to the Greek, you know, civilization and to the Egyptian civilization, like certain symbols mean the same thing now as they did then. And there's just this incredible mm. ancient, kind of belief like I had a dream about a snake and she said snakes are actually this not scary bad thing in the Judeo-Christian sense but they're much more older and they actually symbolize um, the idea that they can shed their skin that they're rebirth and that they're a very good symbol so this kind of stuff is exactly what I need as an artist like it feeds my soul you know and I just it feeds into it feeds into your work I want to get onto your work and the themes but before that why did John hate Disneyland so much what was his reasoning for that so he he hates the whole concept of this um this fake family experience basically okay forced Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, and okay. he doesn't like that. But see, I grew up also, he was born in 62, and I was born in 71. So I think there's also a little bit of, you know, his family, he was the third of four children. Um, and they're more kind of based in the 50s in a strange way, like his, his childhood and his sentimentality. And I don't know, somehow like the 70s going on to the 80s, there's more openness and weirdness about that kind of mass family experience that he he finds disgusting 
and really raw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, there's a whole. I mean, Jeff Koons. There's so many artists like you know, um, Paul McCarthy. Uh, you know that they they basically would use Disney and they would use that whole weird fake yes. family joy as the undercurrent and the sick thing of culture. And uh, and so. Well, the Americana, isn't exactly. it? Well, the American dream it's, subverting that yeah. through cartoons, totally. through kind of TV shows and Hollywood yes. and everything that you're fed as being the the, the American dream. Exactly. Do you know I, what I've mean? also yeah. I've also yeah. heard you talk before, though, yeah. Rachel, about um, the old world kind of Europe yes. and yeah. like the craft yeah. of it, and then the real palaces yes. Yes. That, you, that you would visit later totally. in life versus the Disney totally. palace. Well, that was that was like, Miami. As a kind of theme totally. That was like so. I yeah. think because I had very little experience with real old stuff coming from Miami. And my parents, we would visit, I remember we went to visit London and we went to the Tate and we were all very excited to see the art. And then everyone got hungry and they went to the cafeteria and then we never went to see the art. Like my family was really, really <laughs> crazy. We went to some fancy restaurant that was, I don't know if it's there anymore. And this was a long time ago where it was like a five-star restaurant in the Tate that was based on old English food. And we we, oh, wow. we sat down and had a meal of pigeon pie and things like that. And we were like from Miami in the 80s. And it was like, there was something covered in aspic. And we were all like, what is this? And um, and then we were so full that we couldn't go see the art. And we, I never even saw the museum. It was so unbelievable. Oh, so basically the God. whole idea of this history of all these all these centuries of people who came before you was very much not on my radar. And it wasn't until I actually, I mean, of course I studied art history at Columbia and I had great teachers, but it wasn't until I met John and I was, I was really young. I was 20, I just turned 23. I just understood that you can get a lot from that as an artist and you could take from it and you can, you can not only use it for yourself, but you also have the understanding that, they have done the same things and learned and lost and learned again, and you could learn from their mistakes. So this idea of mm-hmm. reading Veronese's, you know, history of the artists and the Renaissance and, and, um, you know, buying, buying just books on how to do an underpainting from like a Renaissance painter. Like, it's just so fascinating to me that so much of contemporary art is about the annihilation of what came before. And, um, mm-hmm somehow it's like it makes you old and uninteresting to to go before warhol or something like that that you just and right. and that's just crazy to me because you know just looking at what's going happening with covid like the world has been through plagues many many times before you know and and it's mm-hmm. just like we just can't learn because we don't ever look back and read about what what they did and what they did to get over it you know we just keep doing the same things over and over and over again and the bad things and it's just it's just it's just crazy to me so you know and i think that with europe i the the interesting thing for me that was a big epiphany was um was also going back to what i was talking about fairy tales rococo was that when I was around 14 or 15 in Miami, I actually did some modeling. I did. I worked with Bruce Weber when he was doing the Obsession ads in Miami and, and met these incredible people that were all these 
highest level people in the fashion world, which... Did you ever meet Versace? I, Did you ever meet I, Gianni when he was in... Amazingly, he came after I'd left, basically. I, I left wow. Miami in 89, and I think he bought that house a little bit after that. But but I knew right. people who knew him, of course. And I, yeah, he's wow. supposedly an amazingly nice person, you know? Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. yeah but... Yeah. Um, yeah, but really. So you were fourteen, and you got photographed by Bruce yeah, Weber. Yeah, yeah, And he and like street casting, he just saw you on well, the street. Well, there was, was so it? my mom, you know, it's one of those you know typical like L.A. kind of um, scarlet, not scarlet, starlet stories where I was like buying yeah. makeup with my mom in a shopping mall, and a makeup artist said, "Oh, you know, I work for you know fashion shoots, and you look like someone that Bruce Weber is looking for right now." And and it was and it was just also this friend of mine that I became friends with him, Alexis Rodriguez Duarte, who's a fashion photographer in Miami, who was also scouting for Bruce Weber. So it was like a, it was small world stuff at that time. You know, there was not a lot of people there doing that. And, um, but it opened up this world to me of being able to go to Milan and live in Milan for the summer, go to Paris and live in Paris for the summer. At like 14. Yeah. So I went to Paris when I was 15. And then oh. I went to London one summer when I was 16. And then I went to Milan when I was 17. And at that point, I was I was able to live on my own. But the first two years, I went with my mom. And she, she actually rented an apartment in Paris, but then... When I went to London, I lived in a model apartment with all the younger girls. And um, yeah, really? it was, it's incredible. I mean, it's an incredibly weird experience. Um, yeah. And also there's like, you know, playboys that wait outside of the apartment knowing that the young girls are living in there. It's it's like a very, it, you grow oh up God. fast, you know, it's, it's, there's a predatory aspect. But I also kind of learned, oh my God, I... I want to live in New York City. That was what like opened my eyes to getting out of New York, I mean, out of Miami, and also realizing there are people who do creative things, and it's like they make livings at it. You know, there's people who like are magazine editors. I originally I was kind of thinking maybe I just go into something with like fashion or or drawing of you know graphic design. I I didn't know what I was thinking, but I was pretty set about it, and um. But the Rococo thing kind of comes about from that period of like looking at the old, um, you know, I also was an extra on Miami Vice twice. And I had, uh, yes, no Don Johnson <laughs> came on to me when I was about 14 or 15. Yeah, Oh, my God. Yes, very, very. So we're talking about Rococo, yes. but let, let's yeah. come to that in a minute because a lot of people, I, I had to really do some research on Rococo. Yeah. But let, let's talk about the themes yes. in your practice so, because it feels yeah. like you've been pushed into – uh, adult experiences from a young yes, age or experiencing yes, adult events yes. so that and the, and these magazines and stuff so that's that's yeah. kind of like influenced like humanity death decay yeah. that's played yes, into your work yes. and then we have the stages of womanhood yes. all the different cycles of what it is to be yes. a woman that's playing into your practice and obviously that as you've turned into like a mother and you've gone mm -hmm. through the archetypes yes. of the maid the mother and this this is where you are yeah. now that plays into your practice religion is a huge yeah. influence for you that's massive for you but the fairy yeah. tale and the fairy tale as a device mm -hmm. is something that feels so integral yeah. to your practice that I really want to get into that and what age did you discover fairy tales and now as a mother yeah. reading fairy tales to your children yeah. How is how is that now knowing 
what the device of the fairy tale is telling about humanity? How does that play into your kind of teachings to your children? Well, I think that with fairy tales, also with Rococo, like kind of all those themes, it's that there's different stages that they mean different things to you. So when I, you know, read fairy tales when I was a kid, of course, it was like, oh, these are cool stories. I really like them. I think I got really into them. Um, and I think I even illustrated like my own stories about them. I loved, um, you wow. know, Hans Christian Andersen, of course. And I, um, yeah. I, I loved the little matchstick girl, that story, you know, where she had to keep herself alive from like cold by like, basically she sold matches to make a living and she was this very poor girl and that a uh, fairy comes to her and basically you know she dies in the story and it's just a terrible terrible horrible story and then also the little mermaid the original little mermaid is she dies in the story she doesn't get chosen by the prince hans christian anderson mm. has her basically you know she the the witch takes her voice and then yeah. the prince chooses the witch over the real little mermaid and she turns into sea foam at the end of the story so the real fairy tales are really tragic and horrible Dark. and so that's <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of what i think always attracts me and so going back to Rococo really briefly was that when I grew up looking at Disney world, I thought that was Rococo. I thought, you know, the sleeping yes. beauty um, castle in Disney world was, it was based on Neuschwanstein, you know, the, but which wasn't Rococo. Neuschwanstein was done. Let's explain what Rococo okay. is. Though, so Rococo, let's, let's explain sorry. What, it's yeah, yeah, it's a period. It's an art historical period that happened. Um, you know, this is like, this is what happens when I get put on the spot. I think it was, um, <laughs> 16 it's German, yeah, it's right? Ger well every every country had its period so germany had i believe the most intense um kind of artistic experience with rococo but it happened in italy it happened so bernini you know this famous italian sculptor is rococo baroque so they rococo baroque are like two periods that kind of were entwined where the the aesthetic as everyone would know, it is like very gold and glitzy and it has lots of curves and flourishes and Rococo itself, I think it might mean wave or something that they, the wave, this kind of symbol of like a, a crest of a wave that's kind of, you know, a curve and then it kind of um, comes out with like a point and, um, and it happens primarily um, in France um, during Marie Antoinette. That is Rococo. Marie Antoinette is all about Rococo. So it's decadent. It's decadent, it's decadent and it's, it's wealth. Exactly. It's showing your wealth. It's exactly. like, and that again is a, a fascination yes. for you. A historical, yes. how historically yes. people showed their wealth, exactly. and then what defines who defines what wealth. Yes. Is. Yes. Who defined what visually yes. what that is? And so it's also like that's what becomes very interesting is exactly like how one theme at one point of your life and you're the same person can be mean something something totally different later on in your life. So when I was younger, Rococo meant this kind of Disney World thing, and then when I was right about to turn thirty, I took a trip to the Black Forest region um, with two right. really good friends of mine, Mark Fletcher and Tobias Meyer, and they um, they took me on this tour, and I saw what real real German Rococo is, and not this Liberace strange nineteen fifties Florida version is, and it was a complete completely different experience. I walked into this. So there's this famous um, palace outside of Munich that's called um, Nymphenburg. And they have um, mm. an incredible porcelain factory that I am amazingly 
able to work with now and make sculptures with these people that have been there oh, since wow. the 1700s. So it's this, so it, cool. it's like a dream come true for me. Amazing. And um, they have a, a little tiny hunting lodge behind the palace that's called Amalienburg. And Tobias um, grew up in Germany and Austria and is an expert on Rococo. He's actually, that's his art historical like kind of background. And he said, this place is considered the absolute pinnacle and height of Rococo architecture and Rococo um, basically stucco work, the plaster work, which is like the crazy patterns and the white, you know, walls and stuff. So we walked in there and it's very tiny. It's only three rooms. And, um, and it was not meant to be a place where you would sleep. It's not like a a castle. It's just where they would hunt and then they would have their meals or something. And it, and I had this moment that was like one of those moments that, you know, we all have once or twice in our lifetime where you just, everything just somehow makes sense. I was like, Oh my God, like this is not like what old ladies China cups are about. This is something that is the, a moment in history that collided probably a lot like what our moment is happening where there is this old European history of kings and greatness that was turning into revolution, which turned into, you know, the end of that whole era with um, France and, and almost, you know, with England and other places, it was, it was like violence and people like basically saying, why are those people living like this and we're living like this. It was about, you know, um, consciousness um, of, of the middle class. It was so many kind of things. And I saw it also as this idea of perfectionism that has, is going to go bad, which is what happened with Hitler. This, I could feel it, yes. that, that it had this unbelievable, sinister, frightening side to it instead of it looking like gold um whipped cream it looked like skulls and um and knives and death it it was incredible and i and i was i was brought to tears and i i recently went back there again when i was doing making a sculpture you walk through this beautiful forest to get to this place and i had the exact same experience again so it's just there's something about this place just really really brings me to my knees and um and that and I guess it has a lot to do with also just being who I am with the Miami and the fairy tales and and you know that basically this idea of lots of things on the surface and people see it as just this whipped cream and this maybe this old lady thing or whatever and and then underneath it is is this something completely different and a lot most people won't take the time anymore to Take a look, you know, and that's what that's about. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. You know, you know something, Rachel, that I think so striking and successful, actually, in what you've done in your work is if you take the really well-known exhibition that you did at Lever House, for example, like with the Snow Queen as the kind of theme. But like I I read kind of reviews of that where it was talking about this kind of ornate like detailing that you take to that kind of very modern architecture and that maybe the architect would be like turning (laughs) in his grave because it's like so polar what what you brought to it. But I feel like those juxtapositions that you create through your installations, you're, you're kind of bringing that 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 kind of heavy weight and darkness there's of always the a slash is always this side exactly. the, the, the yin and yang yeah. of every of every theme that you tackle Absolutely. there's always the yin and yang of it the yeah. good and bad the old the young Absolutely. The, yeah and bringing it the, into the like poor, modern day though. new yes. york you know because maybe people won't go to germany yeah. and see that yeah. building but but somehow you're Absolutely. bringing it and, the, like, and they're dead and i'm alive so it's this idea of like yeah. whatever i do even if I completely copy what I love, which is kind of, you know, what I'm trying to do right now in my studio, it's not going to ever be that because I'm having a sensibility no. of of a person coming from where I come from without having the, you know, the crafts that I that they would have been taught at that time. First of all, I wouldn't even be able to make any of those things just being a woman at that time. It was never what would be allowed. And um and that's also what kind of fascinates me so much, too, is that, you know, talking about um, just feminism and being a woman artist, like, you know, everyone's trying to rethink, like, you know, there should be more black artists, there should be more women artists. But the, the, that, that whole side has been sublimated for so long. What is that voice? Who is that voice? Like, I'm, for, I'm thinking about this for myself. Like, you know, part of the Jung experience is just is if I'm, I'm right-handed. So the idea is that your right hand, if you are right hand is the dominant side, which makes it the male side in, in terms of just this classic male, female type of thing. And that the left side is the female side, which is the passive side. And so if you think about it, how I can't, I can't even draw with my left hand, you know, I've never even been able to like hold a pencil. How do I let that side actually speak? when it's been so hidden for so long. And that's kind of what I'm fascinated by, just in a really, truly spiritual, you know, Ursula Le Guin, you know her work? She She's a science fiction writer. She died a while ago. She wrote this, I think she was originally English, actually, but then she moved to like Oregon, I think, in like the 70s. She wrote this book called The Left Hands of Darkness. This is how I got on the whole Carl Jung thing. Somehow I read this book, and it's all about how how is the left side that has been the dark and wet and passive and hidden side going to be the one that's going to be the maker and being the one out in the out in public and 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 it's it's just an incredibly fascinating weird mind trip you know mm. if you think so how how do you distill all these themes <laughs> and make sense of them into your artistic practice because you are fundamentally you started off a uh, performance yeah. but you are fundamentally uh, a painter sculptor yeah. how do you how do you make sense of because you yeah. it feels like you are so hungry yeah. thirsty yeah. for yeah. knowledge for education yeah. constantly it feels like your brain just doesn't yeah. want to it hasn't reached the limit it, it's limitless that is a problem as we all are yeah. but but you're yeah. yeah but how do yeah. you then 
How do you harness that and make artworks yeah. with that? Because materiality feels very important to you as well when you're painting, especially as a sculptor. It definitely is. I mean, I think that, Wessel, one of my other dreams I had was I was on a talk show <laughs> and there was a guy <laughs> and there was a guy in the front Two really <laughs> handsome men, yeah? And there was a guy <laughs> in the front row who was playing a really loud boombox during the talk show and it was a live talk show and I couldn't believe that any that nobody was telling this guy to stop playing the boombox. And of course, my analyst said, that's you you're the guy with the boombox and you're the one on the stage as well you are unable to sometimes concentrate because there's so many things going on and my brain is Mm. completely always like oh my god look at that oh my god look at that you know and all three of my kids have adhd by the way so of course that makes perfect sense but like you know so i i think that um the way i try to do it is i i i believe that the hardest thing for anybody, especially right now, is to just really like just dive deep into like whoever is this little box inside of you. And, um, mm. and you know, a lot of people believe in doing it through meditation, through yoga. I actually seem to have that moment when I'm like lying in bed and I'm just closing my eyes. And it's that kind of incredible um, bridge between that conscious and unconscious moment. And I try to really remember what I'm thinking because um it's a it's like I described it I think um in my book where I was just talking about how it's a tiny little like kicking like of a newborn baby or a feather or something that is so delicate inside you that's letting you feel excitement about something coming and you have to pick Mm. up on it you have to understand what that tiny little like um vibration is and you have to and also it has to be specific about something like so it if i don't have that about anything then i feel terror and i'm frightened but usually there's something i could i could watch like I could watch a film it could be something from that it just it just pick up on any little little nuance and um and it could it can take me off on a whole new direction the problem yeah. is is sometimes i can go down a whole new direction for a while and maybe it wasn't what I wanted, you know, but you have to just allow yourself to just be open. And I, I'm what is your daily practice? How often are you in the studio? And are you someone that has like a sketchbook with them all the time and jotting ideas down? And well, notes? now I have like this weird little sketchbook. That's like my dream book, really, to tell you the truth. I used to have that. And and I used to read all the time and have a book with me. But now my brain is working on different levels. Like I have these Bose headphones that I like to do books on tape when I'm working because I can't seem to um, read anymore. Like the minute I have a book in front of me, I just fall asleep because I have so like little time that I just like pass out when I've got that quiet moment. I like to um, do some type of physical activity every morning. I work out like seven days a week, but it's not like working out. I'll either do yoga or I'll do Pilates, something that just I, I realize I, I stop being able to breathe. I get so like I, I hold it all in my upper like kind of throat area. And so mm. if I do an exercise that's based on breath, I, I feel amazing for the whole day. And then I do that. And then I have like a very leisurely kind of meal with John usually where we hang out till about 12. I'd say we're kind of on the late side. We're, and then I get to mm-hmm. the studio around 1230 and work till about seven, seven thirty, and then go home and have dinner with the kids and the family and 
we like to stay up late. I used to work at a bar for millions of years where I'd go to bed at like six in the morning. So naturally I'm like, so before kids, I would work till really late. I, I love to work in the studio super late. I love to like eat dinner I, because of Miami, you see all the Cuban families eating dinner at like two or in the morning. That's kind of how I am. We pastis used to be open, and now it's open again, which is amazing. But it used to be open back in the meatpacking district, and Cecily Brown and me and John and a whole bunch of Jessica Craig Martin. We'd all get together at like twelve thirty, one in the morning, and have dinner together like every night because we all had our studios in the wow. meatpacking district. And this was back, you know early 2000s, before September 11th. And um, we just had this wonderful, wonderful life. It was like... Yeah, what's yeah. that like being an artist couple yeah. in downtown New York uh, in like... What, what, I what mean, is that in the 90s, like? it, it was like the literally, there was nothing better. It was just incredible. <laughs> it really, that's the thing is like, it was a bubble that was just, in retrospect, I realized, oh my God, like no, there's no other time in history that has had no problems in terms of the the world in the 90s just seemed like it was just a bubble you know but in new york you know you could afford we had a studio we both had huge studios in the meatpacking district you know in new york city wow. which now is where the apple store is you know we it was it was it was incredible it was like you know you could get a space for you know i don't know a thousand dollars you'd have like a huge studio and make enough money that you could easily pay that and then have enough to go out and have dinner with your friends. It was, you know, it was this perfect combination of not having too much money that you had to like actually worry about putting it in a savings account. Like you would go through it and use it all, but then you would, <laughs> and then you would end up, um, you know, but making enough that you could have exactly what you wanted. We would like, you know, eat like Kings and drink like Kings and that kind of stuff. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. So your your work, I've always, uh, from what yeah. I've been learning about it, it's so complex because you work across so many different mediums. And I know many artists do that, but I'm really fascinated with you in particular because I love this idea that from your brain, like you pick up a pencil, yeah. you might make a drawing, and then from that yeah. drawing, you'll begin to then create the sort of maquette for what will then become a much more giant kind of sculpture. But there's all these kind of different... Um, points in your creativity yeah. can you speak a bit about how that yes. emerged in your drawing practice yeah. leading to sculpture? I mean I think that um you know for a while I was just kind of like working based on that Miami unconscious period of my life and it was just really like I made a lot of the earlier work up until about 2000 were just these strange weird things and um and I missed that because now I don't know if I can ever go back to that state of mind and I want that's what I think a lot of this Jungian stuff is trying to get back to that and I think that's important also as you get older is to realize that when you're young you actually might have all the ideas and the freedom but you don't know how to make them so it's very important mm -hmm. to keep notes and to do lots of drawings and kind of little reminders like like, for example, I'm trying to get my daughter, who's 11, to keep a dream diary because I think it would be incredible to know at 50 what you dreamed when you were 11 and to actually see if there's any, there will be a thread, of course, because it's the same mm -hmm. mind who's thinking these things. And it's just, it's, it's kind of an awareness that, um, that I find very important. And so, so now I'm, I, I lost that unconscious 
kernel and I don't know why. And I started to need other source material. It wasn't within me anymore. So that's when I started to look at the German Rococo stuff, which is why that trip happened. Because I was, I was like going to this, this famous bookstore in New York called The Strand. And I would just sit and look at all these books and just go through them because I was like, I felt like I was empty inside and I, I was like a vampire. I needed my next victim, you know, and I'm, and I'm looking and all of a sudden I kind of get on this idea of like, porcelain figurines from Nymphenburg and that's how the German Rococo thing happened and so I'll start then sketching those images that I liked but I want to make it my own so instead of just using the old the the master's image I try to disseminate it and pull out what I want from it by then making it mine by drawing it and then I started to take it one step further by then cutting up the drawing and making it into a three-dimensional paper model, which then became a whole kind of way of working that I never expected. Actually, it wasn't like con it wasn't like a conscious thing. I just was I was trying to figure out how to use what I liked and make it my own. You know, um, so that, that's how that happened. And then I I do that sometimes also with so I do that with some I, it's again duality. So some sculptures are like flat planes that are kind of added to each other in a very kind of cubist or Russian constructivist type of way. And then other mm -hmm. sculptures are really like three-dimensional in the round, which is like more like a Bernini or a Canova, which I love. I love those sculptors too. So right. they're again, they're kind of fighting each other too, how one's round and one's flat. And, and the mirrors themselves, the mirror paintings are also in my mind dual because a mirror itself is both reflective and it's positive and it's a deep pool and it's negative. So it does this incredible thing of doing a push and pull within its own surface. And, and the fairy tale thing yeah, with the mirror, mirror, absolutely. mirror on the wall is the fairy. Yes. The and also the portrait you, of Dorian Gray, the aging. Yes. I, I mean, yes. all these things exactly that you're. I yeah. actually thought a lot about that while looking yeah. at your book. There, there was something about that whole exactly. tale as well. well. The crow and, and I the saw maiden. a video as well of the um, show yeah. at the Jewish Museum um, recently. And I saw you talking about the materials that yeah. you use and how it's very important, you know, in relation to the type yeah. of sculpture you're talking about. So the more 3D ones, you might actually have a very reflective, you know, material that's exactly. shiny versus a, you know, a very flat kind of wood or totally. metal. And, they're, and um, it's all about this kind of, this push and pull, like, you know, the weird thing for me also with the mirrors is that my husband paints me and has been painting me since we first met when I was 23. And I see myself age through his paintings, which is so weird, you know, oh, wow. he's been painting me now as a almost 50 year old person. And, and it's just, it's so intense, you know, you're just kind of like, wow. Um, I, you know, I'm seeing it on all different levels. I'm not only the maker, but I'm the muse. I'm both. So here in my own practice, in my own life, I am his muse and I'm also the person making so things. So it's very, it's, it's, uh, it's dual in that way. And, and, um, you know, right now I'm making a sculpture in the back that's made out of tinfoil, the actual base of the, oh, so wow. there was a sculpture that was in my Jewish museum show called the bleeding shepherdess. And it was kind of based on Marie mm -hmm. Antoinette's fantasy of herself as a shepherdess. And, um, and the, and I had made the whole thing with like sticks for the skeleton and just making the meat of the body out of tinfoil and then covering it in resin. So anything that's kind of lying around and, 
very easily maneuverable is like what I like to work with. I'm, I'm not a big metal person because I metal's just a lot more difficult to work with. I, I, mm-hmm. I learned welding when I was in school and I really, I like the whole masculine, like, you know, hitting thing. I and mean, that's another whole funny thing is that my studio, again, Carl Jung believes that as you get older, you have to join both sides of your life that like, you might start off more, feminine and more left and passive side and as you get older you have to actually consciously try to become more masculine and more right and more kind of positive side because by the end of your life you join both sides and you're like one kind of unit and so for me my studio is the masculine side and my home is the feminine side so I feel very kind of centered yeah So I've just got some dogs just turned <laughs> up and they're making loads of noise in the background. It's okay. Um, so an, a, a huge uh, theme through your yeah. practice is the mother. The mother yeah. character is there a lot. And ha- a- when you became a mother yourself, did the work change for you? Did you feel a change in, in the practice? Yes, absolutely. Oh, sorry, it's hang okay. on. Cooper, <laughs> shush, shush. He sounds happy though. He's, yeah, he's being very he's cute. Loud. Sorry. Don't worry. So I think with the mother thing, I mean, it's – it's a lot like everything in, in my practice and in my life. I don't know what the hell is going on until way after the fact. Like, I don't, I mean, I think a lot of people are this way, but I don't know. I hope so. I I mean, just having the show and talking about some pieces that I had on, I, I didn't even know why I made those pieces, but now I do, like 20 years later. And it's the same thing with being a mother, like, I went into the whole thing. I was with John for a long time, for almost 10 years before we had kids. I, I think we would have had kids. We were, you know, definitely talking about it. But September 11th, really experiencing that was such a huge psychic freak out. And, um, you know, the 90s and that weird bubble was just like popped. In the where, big, where was you when it happened? We, was we, you, yeah, was we you... were really close. So we, we used to live in a ground floor space right next to the Holland Tunnel, which was basically yeah. on Canal Street. So if you were anywhere near Canal Street and below, you were considered in that that area that you had to basically um, show d- documentation to get in and out. There were there were tanks, there were military. It was it was it was totally unreal. I can't even I can't even use any other word than that because, I mean, I was sleeping. I had um, I had my first version of Mr. Green Jeans, a little tiny black Afro-Pinscher named Chewy, and she woke up and I thought she had to go to the bathroom, but it was because the plane, the first plane had gone in, and and oh and, and everyone kind of felt it and knew something was going on, but I I was asleep, so I took her outside in my pajamas, and um, there was a man that used to sell hot dogs right in front of our our loft. And he was on the floor, like literally like this six foot seven man, like screaming, crying, like, like all face down on the sidewalk. And I was like, what's going on? And then I like looked up and I saw the second plane hit. And right when I looked Ah. up and, and, um, and it was just, you know, the change of, of everything, the change of the world. And, and the weird thing is, is that I don't know if people have written about this, but there was a big birth bubble that happened after September 11th in New York City. So my son was born in, um, or like in 2003, and his year when he came into kindergarten had to be expanded by like literally like 
a whole new class because there were so many kids. So, like, people dealt with it in New York City by having babies. Sex, sex and death, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Sex and, death. sex and death. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess you need that absolutely. intimacy, that kind of closeness, yeah, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. An, inc- an incredible yeah. fact, talking about, like, the history of New York. Yeah. And, again, it shows how headstrong you are when you were younger. But I learned through you that tattoos were illegal in New York from 1961 to 1997. And you yourself, when you were, what, 18? I had just turned 18, yep. You went to the Bronx by yourself to find some (laughs) random guy who would illegally tattoo you. Yes. Can we? Can I just get this story, please? Because yes. this blew my mind. Yes, it was. It was crazy. Like I don't know if you know. In some ways, I think. Oh, I was, now as a parent, was I just doing that to piss my parents off? Especially my dad being a dermatologist. My, yeah, you know, crazy. Oh yeah, getting tattoos. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, Rebelling against that. Was he anti-tattoos? Oh my your god. Dad, and also, you know, my yeah. father was Jewish and was brought up Orthodox Jewish. My mother was Catholic. But you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery if you have a tattoo. So it's <gasps> really, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's what even today that's like, it, it depends on how I guess reform cemeteries, it's fine, but if you're Orthodox, no, mm. absolutely not. Yeah, wow. and actually, I heard a story that you were yeah. learning, kind of learning for your bar mitzvah, yeah. and then you found out you couldn't actually do it. So, you had it's to true, suddenly stop my mom because your mum wasn't. I yeah. know, it's like, I know, yeah. it's like there's so many crazy stories in my family. Yeah, you were baptized Catholic and then went to it's Hebrew true. school. It's like, no, this <laughs> yeah. sort of makes sense. But talk about this tattoo then. Exactly. So, you it's went, I want to get yeah. a tattoo. So, basically, you couldn't get it in New well, York. it's a combo of two, uh, two, a lot of funny stories. So, when I was growing up in Miami, I would love to watch the decay of these McMansions that people would build. Like this idea of this brand new mm. crazy house, bright orange stucco, like Spanish style. And then there'd be like a giant like army of ants crawling through it, like right after they build it. So I had a fascination with bugs and the, the images of bugs being decay. And so I used to draw like little ants on my hands like a like a trail of them when I was growing up and thinking it would look really cool as a tattoo and I thought god would it be so cool to just do a trail of ants going down my whole arm and um and my parents were like horrified you know and they and I never said anything <laughs> about it to them and then my father being the doctor would also bring home cool medical um stuff for me to play with like when I was always growing up I was doing stuff with beeswax and with medical plaster bandages. And then one time he brought home something called alginate, which is what they make, you know, the dental molds of. And this was back in like, you know, 86. And I don't think a lot of people were using this in their art forms. But I started to do like, you know, casts of my vagina and my anus using this stuff. And so I started to... How old were you then? This was, what this was probably in? around 17, 18. I started wow. to do this. And yeah. um, and then I started to wear the vagina as a necklace and my anus as a drop earring. Beautiful. No yeah, way. And, go, Beautiful. and I would wear it to school and Amazing. I'd go out like this. What? Yeah, I mean, I was a complete lunatic. I really... I, I, you know, Have you still got them? Are they still I do, around? I do. And then I, do I would give you them... You need to just release them through Tiffany's or something. I, it's true. Like a special. Well, my friend Lisa Eisner, who's this amazing jewelry designer who works with Tom Ford, mm. she wants to do something with mm. me. So maybe we'll amazing. eventually do that. Wow. But, yeah, and then, I, of course, I give them to boyfriends or to very close friends as gifts. An- anus earrings. That's cute. That's yeah, a nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's intimate. So, so you, so this tattoo then. So, so basically, how, what, so you... I was, I started to think about the idea of this decay and this body thing, and um, 
And I went to the MoMA um, and I saw the Salvador Dali sculpture where she had ants crawling across her face. It's this famous sculpture with a right. baguette on her head and the ants. Yes. So right. I said, oh, I want to do the ants and I'm going to do it. And I got it in my mind. I'm going to do something. When I move to New York City, the first second I get there, I'm going to do it. My parents aren't going to know. And I'm going to have ants crawling around on my butt. And they'll never see it because it's, you know, my butt. It's private. And, and then I thought, you know what? I'm going to get it. I'm going to get a fly. And Albert Durer, somebody like I remember, did an amazing little fly drawing that was super detailed. I brought the image. I found this guy who was completely illegal. The whole thing was really shady. I had to take the subway up to the Bronx in 1989, which was very not safe and all by myself. Um, I went to his apartment. He was a completely sleazy guy. The whole thing was insane in retrospect when I think that I did this. I went alone. Mm. I had the drawing. He said, um, and instantly I realized I'm not going to pull my pants down for this guy. This is a bad. I said, okay, do it on my shoulder blade, way inside, and no one will see it. Hopefully, my parents won't see it because we'll go over a strap on like my bra or something. So I had this little tiny little fly image. And I, um, I gave him like 50 bucks or whatever it was and, and he's doing it. And then, and then I turn around and it's a dragonfly. It's not a fly. It's a dragonfly and it's got really pretty rainbow colors. And I'm like, what? And he said, you'll thank me for this. You're a pretty girl. You're not going to want to fly on your shoulder. And I was just shocked. So I go back to Columbia University, have this, you know, this bandage on, and I was just like mortified. And people were like, what'd you get? And I'm like, oh, God. And I show people and they're like, I thought you wanted to fly. I said, I know. I just like a perfect example <laughs> of like a woman oh being told by a guy, this is not what you want. I'm going to tell you what you want. Right. So then mm -hmm. it really pisses me off. I don't know what to do about it. And then I remember about the ants going across the Salvador Dali face. So I find out about another tattoo artist that's down on 8th Street that's an Astor place that's more well-known as an artist. And, um, and I go over to him. I show him the image of the, of, of the ants. So he creates the ants killing the dragonfly. And they start crawling out wow. of my underarm. We design it together. And he makes it look exactly the way I want. And now I'm happy. And then another like couple weeks go by and I'm like, but the ants need to be coming out of somewhere. They just can't just start from the side of my underarm. So then I bring in the <laughs> cast of my vagina and we, we do the tattoo of my vagina inside my underarm and have the ants crawling out of my, out of my um, vagina. <laughs> Yeah. Of course. So are you happy with that now? What, what was that like I when mean, John saw that for the first he was time? Just kind of like, <laughs> when, when people see that. <laughs> I mean, now, the, of course, the sad story is, is now that so many people think tattoos are absolutely like, you know, the tramp stamp, the thing that everybody does. It's kind of like, yeah, probably if I didn't have it, I'd probably be happier. Because I think the idea of right. being a, bl a blank slate especially the really crazy thing is, is as an artist, you're here I am. I'm like absolutely obsessed with my own line and I don't let anyone touch any of my kind of things because it has to be my hand doing it, but I'm having a complete stranger put something permanent on my body for the rest of my life. Yeah, It's insane. I mean, also plastic surgery, the same thing for me. Someone will have a plastic surgeon 
I mean, obviously, if you've had a car accident, of course, I totally understand it. But if you're having a complete stranger do something to your lips, I mean, it's what his idea of, of beauty is and not yours. It's completely crazy. You know, the, mm-hmm. uh, it's anything, anything that involves someone else's hands on your body, unless it's completely like you need it and it's, and it's you know, life-saving, I just I find it really weird. So that was when you were studying mm-hmm. at Columbia? That, that you got that yeah. tattoo because around that time you were you were being mentored and taught by Kiki yes, Smith. Yeah, so she was actually and she made that incredible she sculpture, was amazing. didn't she? That, with the yes. tail. So I actually hadn't met her yet. Yeah. So she she my teacher at Columbia was actually Judy Faff, and she is a sculptor okay. who kind of was so amazingly energetic and transformative that everyone who was doing some other major became art majors because of her. She was so amazing and so exciting and so a whole bunch of us all became professional artists because of her and I ended up getting into um Skowhegan which is this artist colony in Maine that is you know Mm -hmm. really wonderful and very prestigious and she helped me um apply and get in there and actually had Columbia pay for me to go there which is incredible um and Ursula von Riedingsvard who's an incredible sculptor is Judy Pfaff's best friend so they were my mentors basically and Ursula was teaching at Yale for the MFA um at Yale and um and then when I went to Skohegan Kiki Smith was my teacher there so I had these three incredible incredible sculptors who happen to also be women like be my my mentors and they helped me you know, put me in group shows starting off, like a lot of just incredible things. Yeah. But I was so blown away by the sculpture you made back then, the yeah. ultimate yeah. woman sculpture. Because, you know, you were talking about like when you're younger and how you have yeah. so much like already there. And I heard recently Damien Hurst weirdly yeah. talking about um, Francis Bacon saying to him that that early work with the yeah. flies and the, you know, the, the kind of cycle of life that happens where the flies get born and Absolutely. they get killed. He was kind of like, you did it all then Damien to him he sort of said you you had it all in your hands Absolutely. right at the beginning and for me I kind of feel yeah. like you did Absolutely. too in a way like you have this amazing sort of yes. seed that's so kind of like present Absolutely. in that work that then goes on for the rest of your career yeah. to inform yeah I think that that was the really shocking thing for me seeing um doing the book and thank you for looking at it and reading it it's just like oh thank basically, you I love, it's it's like, thank I love you. your book I can't thank tell you. you everyone listening to this yeah. please thank buy you. this book because honestly it's one of the most beautifully put together books I've thank seen you i spent like, a lot of time on it and it's like God. and rizzoli you know thankfully just did everything like that i asked for it's basically like doing this and gathering every single little tiny piece of like yeah, the, the ultimate woman I did when I was still an undergraduate, you know, and, and that sculpture mm. doesn't exist anymore. So it's a cast of me on all fours that I still have little scars on my arms actually from having to razor blade myself out of this cast. And I got the, I got no the plaster lie in, in my, in the cuts and they left these little, so I have like little lines kind of going up my arm actually. It's, crazy and um wow. and i wanted to do this cast of me like and and i had seen kiki smith's work um with this one where it's this tail sculpture this giant shit mm. coming out of her ass i mean it's, it's it was oh it was God. it was shocking honestly when i saw that i just coming from miami and not knowing really about contemporary art and seeing that i was like oh my god you could make art about anything you know i just didn't realize yeah. it and it was it was so powerful and also the scale and the size of the woman and um 
it was at a gallery right around the corner from my studio right now. It was on Grand Street at a gallery called Fabush that doesn't exist anymore. And um, and so I, I did this cast of my own body and I had these kind of vaginal tubes coming out of my head and my tube breasts and my vagina, my anus. And they looked like someone had like shot me through with like um, like a giant, you know, gun. Like they were giant bullet holes mm. and they were really, mm. and I had made them really long to cut them off and make them closer to the body. But the, when they, when I saw them as these giant, like crazy, like phallic symbols, but also tunnels and it was intense. And then I covered the body with um, hair and with um, with stocking material, and I also love obviously Louise Bourgeois and Eva Hess and mm-hmm. um, and Nikki de Saint Fall and all of those women just really kind of came through. And the violence, you know, there's a huge amount of violence about your own body, kind of you know the idea of filth and blood of your own body. And that's the other thing about religion is women were never allowed to be priests because they could never be pure. Their bodies would never allow them to be completely a soul with God. Their body is, is tethered to the earth. They will constantly be dirty. And, um, so that was another thing I studied that I loved at school was like this book called of purity and danger about the Puritans and about the idea of filth. And, and, and so all of that comes into play. I definitely think about it a lot. Yeah. I just think it's a beautiful thing as well that like Kiki Smith sculpture yeah. kind of almost gave you permission Absolutely. and kind of like, and somehow inspired you to then just make yeah. your work. And then your work will now do that for yes. a new generation, yeah, totally. probably even listening to this yes. podcast right now, you know, there yes. may be people who don't even know you yet who now will buy this book, see your work. Yes. You know, I love that kind of connection through history. And Very much so. Circle. Very you know, much so. It's a wonderful yeah. thing. Yeah. For me, yeah. I think it was also seeing, um, that crazy guy, I, oh God, I'm blanking out his name. He, the first time I ever saw a sculpture like that when I was like growing up in Miami, there was a show of the man, he's American, Dwayne Hansen. Do you know Dwayne Hansen? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh my yes, God. Yes, like yes. he happened to have a show at the University of Miami. And I don't know why, but I happened to see it. And it was like shocking to me because I thought sculpture was like mm. Rodin, you know, or, mm. or Bernini. Yeah. It had to be stone. It had to be this kind of really. And that's the thing is this idea of high culture and low culture. I'm always fascinated by that. And I'm fascinated by this idea of coming from Miami and not being the high culture Europe. And, you know, and I have to kind of make things like out of tinfoil if I need to, you know. <laughs> Love that. Love that. Well, Rachel, we ask every guest that comes on two very important sure. questions. The first one is, and I'm interested in this because I think you are a collector, you and your husband, yes. or you have artist friends give you artworks and you collect old art yes. but if you could do an art heist if you could have any work of art in the world for yourself uh, what would it be and why oh boy you know th- that's always a good question because weirdly enough it's like everything where it changes it changes with time so what would it yes. be right now for me i actually think it would be at this moment Etan Donnet, you know the sculpture that duchamp made that's in the philadelphia museum of art where you peek through a hole and you see yes. a body of a woman I, where that her legs yeah. are spread and she's holding a lamp. That's where my head is right now. I'm obsessed with the idea of peeking and the inside of the body and what what does that message mean? Was he was he was that about violence towards women or was that about looking into yourself? That that 
sculpture to me is incredibly profound and weird. And actually, your your book has cut out sections yeah. yes, in yes. in the book where you have to look Absolutely. through and peek through. So it's like oh, a kind was of that taken from there? yes, yes. That oh, was wow. yeah. I love that sculpture. I love it. Yeah. You know, I I, I actually went to Philadelphia when yeah. I was touring years ago, and I, I I saw that sculpture, and I remember being devastated it, by it. Yeah. And we. And weirdly, I just, a friend of mine's trying to make me watch this French TV series called Spiral. And it's meant to be a kind of crime uh-huh. detective thing. And I had to turn it off after the first five minutes because it has this brutal murder oh. of a woman. And I text her and just said, I can't watch yeah. this because it's just yeah. upholding kind of misogyny. Yeah. And then it's really stuck with her, Lindsay Mendick, another yeah. artist, actually. But it's a similar experience to when I saw the yeah. Duchamp one, because to me, it just was yeah. like violence somehow, even though yeah. it was, it's also a naked body, but it's a really it is. complex It's work so somehow. weird. And if you see the pictures of actually what it looks like um and how i mean it's just you take the door off and what it really i mean it's about smoke and mirrors you know the whole thing is in and and art is about smoke and mirrors everything is about smoke and mirrors really it's it's in and it means different things to different people at different times in your life again and so so that piece to me now um i would love to own that and like and really break it down and figure it out like the way like you know a science experiment or something that would be so cool for me right now yeah that's a perfect summation in a way of your whole practice because that quote you said about a kind of fantasy and then showing how it's It's constructed You know, yes. almost like going back to those Bruce Absolutely. Weber photos. And like your you. sets, you know, the way you build sets. You're, 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 you want us to yeah. see the back of the sets. It feels very theatrical, yeah, totally. your work, but you like to see backstage. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll send you the picture that Bruce Weber took of me. It'll totally blow your mind. It'll be so, wow. yeah. It's amazing. It's totally crazy. And you're still friends with him. Yeah. He photographs your family. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He photographed my family two years ago up in Maine. And it was, it was also, again, like life is not a straight you know, beginning and ends line. It's a circle that, I mean, how he's, he's doing this with my family. It's just, it's, it's incredible. You know, this idea of knowing me when I was 14 and now he sees my kids when they're 14. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The other question we ask every guest is what is your favorite color? Oh boy. Hmm. I mean, I have to have two colors. That's the problem. Cause I always think a color looks really good next to another color. You have to have like, so sure. I would choose. Well, that's you. Yeah. There's that's always a, a slash, yeah, there's a slash yeah, between yeah, exactly. everything. With and you, I'm yeah. a Gemini. I'm a Gemini. Yeah. So I guess that's, all, yeah, <laughs> oh, that's everything, right. oh, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I would choose a weird purpley, like dusty gray, like a, like a strange kind of dead color, like, and then a beautiful cream yellow right now, like next to each other. I don't know why, but that would be something. <laughs> wow, that is the most unique answer we've had, I think. I love that one. I don't know why, but that's... Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to work that I out. What would, Jung, what would Jung say probably about that? Probably the that's idea, a... I would imagine, is probably death and life, you know? Life, like, yeah. Because yeah, probably the dusty is the is the grave and then the yellow is the sun. It's just this idea that... Are you... Are you scared of death? Is something that I mean, you know because you, you yes. channel it so much in your practice. Yes, yeah. but I also think that um, I I don't know. I'm starting to have that idea that it's not the end. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it's just. I'm afraid of whatever whatever that next consciousness is. I I'm I'm a little bit afraid of that. I guess you know. I don't think that. Um, 
I want to stay here as long as I possibly can. I'm afraid that I'm not going to get everything done that I want to do. That's actually really the truth. I, I'm, I'm terrified. That's my biggest fear is that I'm going to be on my deathbed. And supposedly this happened to Leonardo da Vinci, who just, it's shocking. But he said, I, 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 let, I let God down. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And I mean, of course, that's insane for Leonardo da Vinci to say that. But I think that actually is the case for almost all artists is that they have so much that they want to do and they just are terrified of time running out while they're here on this planet, on this, on, in this wow. lifetime, because that's a big part of, um, if you get a chance, like the whole memories, dreams and reflections by Jung as a book on tape with headphones mm -hmm. is just incredible. Like you listen to this when you're going on walking the dogs, it's just like, Oh my God, you just, it, it, it makes you on a different plane of, of, of what's happening and, and how it all fits into things for the future and the past. There's this whole story that's called the jeweled net of Indra that we're all these diamonds and we reflect our, each of our souls is one diamond on this net. And so we reflect diamonds that were way before us and diamonds that are way ahead of us. And we all are part of this whole thing and you just kind of fit into it somehow. And I, I truly believe, I believe that. It? I really yeah. believe that, yeah. you know, I like that. Yeah. I like that. You know, yeah. before we go, I, I heard you describe when you were growing up, you tried to sort of fit in um, and yeah. be cool and be a cool yeah. artist. And then you sort of had this realization that actually yeah. you're you and you, you might actually be sort of seemingly yeah. uncool, but that makes you cool because yeah. it's your thing. What kind of advice would you give to, to artists who are coming up now or trying to work out their careers at any stage, really? Yeah. But, um, I, if you were to sort of talk to your younger yeah, self now. Yeah, I think, I mean, like just having the show... I also, it was really good for me to see everything in a room all together. And I realized, yeah, I, I have been doing a lot of work, even though you think that you're not doing a lot of work, you actually are. And it's like this idea of yeah. self-defeat is a big one for everybody. And I do think it's very much for an artist that you, since you're kind of going at your own pace and nobody's telling you what to do, you think you're not doing enough and you are, you actually really are. Even if you do... <clears throat> something small it's something that didn't exist before you you know and and then another thing is 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 your weaknesses and the things that you absolutely despise about yourself are also really like in the stupid like kind of self-help way are the things that make you who you are and and it makes you so really valuable and so the parts of being from Miami and being embarrassed that I didn't have any kind of art historical knowledge is what got me my first foot in the door, you know, because no one else had anything that they were doing that was like my stuff at all. And, and it made mm. me embarrassed and it still kind of sometimes makes me embarrassed. And I, I feel like I'm the loud mouth at the party, you know, I'm, I'm Lilith and I'm that woman, but then, you know, someone like Richard Prince, you know, who's, I've always been a huge fan of, and I've always thought he's the coolest guy in the whole room in terms of his art. And it's so, it's so his thing, but it also has so much of a level of coolness. Like he came to see my show and he was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it made me feel so great because it just, I, I just said, here's the guy that was like, in my mind, coming into the New York City art world was like, 
the most popular guy in the high school, you know? And I was like, the, 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 you know, the prom king likes me and likes my work. It just was so awesome. And it was, and so (laughs) you just have to kind of realize that whatever makes you the dork is going to also make you the person that the prom king is going to like kind of thing. You know, it's very 16 candles yeah. that Johnny is going to be like, you just, it's very, yeah, very fairy yeah, tale as yeah, well. Totally. Yeah. Oh, Rachel yeah. Feinstein. That was just the most incredible awesome. interview. Thank you so, oh, thank so, you so much. So much. Thank I had you. the best time. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Yeah. For everyone listening, please really go to our to Instagram page and you can check out at talk. Are you on Instagram? Rachel? I was, and then I looked at it too much during COVID. So I have a page, but I kind of am silent right now because it was taking too okay. much of my, my my memory and my art focus but but i do have it's, it's rachel yeah. feinstein studio but sadly i'm not looking at it right now <laughs> maybe i'll go back right. yeah. but there's well, work on there people yeah. can look yeah. at that's yeah. right but, yeah. cool. yes we'll be linking linking to awesome. that and also um we'll make available details of your book and people should look up the jewish museum yes. website for the show that's now closed but it is awesome. extraordinary yes. so please check out the awesome. images of yeah. that and we'll be back awesome. very soon thank, thank you, you. Rachel. have a wonderful night Lots of love. So thanks bye. cheers everyone bye, bye everyone bye 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 